Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. It is the 5th of February, 2020. Um, So I think probably with everybody else, we are going to lead off today with the question of the State of the Union. And we're going to discuss last night's State of the Union address by the President of the United States at the bottom of this hour. But right now, what um, in these opening couple of minutes, what I want you to consider is the state of our union with Christ. So our individual union with Christ produces among us as believers a union in Christ as well. And so what is the state of your union with Christ as an individual? And then consider for a moment the state of our union in Christ as uh, as a collection of believers. Uh, um, so every Christian alive today is in union with Christ individually, but we are also then in un- in union with one another. So what's the state of that union? Do you feel unified with other Christians? Do you feel not only at one with Christ, but at one with other Christians? And that would be the state of the union question that each Christian is provoked to ask today, um, regardless of how you may have felt about the State of the Union Address by the President of the United States last night. The state of the union with Christ is an eternal state. Uh, just consider that for a moment. It's also a temporal state. And so um, I thought I might review a few verses this morning about the state of our union in Christ and with Christ. Um, and then in the bottom uh, half of this hour, we are going to talk about the State of the Union Address last night by the President of the United States. For those of you who missed it, Um, There were uh, some breaches of decorum, for sure, that I want to discuss with Hunter Baker from Union University. Um, There were many remarks by the president um, that I think, as Christians, we we certainly want to celebrate and look forward to. The president promised the end to late-term abortions in the United States of America. Uh, He talked a lot, or at least periodically, about religious liberty protections, um, reducing health care costs, which is of equal concern to people of faith and and people of no faith, um, and and a promise to expand access to private schools, which is something that we talked about during National School Choice Week last week, and um, and a goal that is shared by many people of faith who who want to either homeschool or have their children educated in private institutions that might be uh, church affiliated. So there you go. Those are some of the things that we are going to highlight. But let me let me draw us back to what I think for Christians um, would be would be a point of conversation today regardless of your political leanings. And that would be this this question or this conversation about the state of our union in Christ as believers. So Ephesians 1, chapter 4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, in Christ, in connection with Christ. God sees us before we ever existed in the kind of way that we think about existence. God's uh, God's connection to us is restored in Christ. Um, Ephesians 1.6 states that we have received grace in the beloved, in Christ. 
And the way that that grace flows to a sinner um, is in union or relationship with Christ. And so, you know, I just ask again, what is the state of your union in Christ? Ephesians 1, 7 says we have redemption in Christ. Like none of this is going to happen when I say none of this. Salvation, sanctification, glorification, none of this is going to happen apart from Christ. It happens in Christ. And so what is the state of your union today in Christ? When we, uh, when we survey what is happening in our own culture, um, I, I will recognize that there are many institutional breakdowns. Um, some of the breaches of decorum last night are evidence of that as well. First up this morning, I have um, a, conver- a conversation with Yuval Levin uh, about the need to revive our institutions. And when we talk about institutions, we're talking not only about those institutions that you might see in the culture writ large, but we're talking about institutions like marriage and the family and why um, we need to recommit to those institutions in order that culture writ large might experience revival as well. All right. So that conversation with Yuval Levin up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I am privileged to be joined today by Yuval Levin. Uh, In addition to many other things, he's the Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and Editor of National Affairs. He is joining us today as the author of A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks very much for having me. So we all um, we all experience this like we all experience that it feels as if our social fabric is frayed or that our culture is on the verge of collapse. Like we all feel that at different levels for different reasons at different times. You are addressing this conversation as a conversation um, that if we would focus on institutional health, if we would focus on the institutions of our day and why they are failing, um, and the and the role that we negatively play in it, but could positively play, like it feels like that's the conversation you're trying to have. So have I got that about right? Yes, that's right. I, I would say there are a lot of ways to think about the nature or the sources of the kind of social crisis we're living through. It has political facets that look like polarization and division, has cultural facets that look like different kinds of breakdown. In a lot of people's personal lives, it looks like alienation, isolation, loneliness, uh, it looks like an increase in suicide rates and opioid use. And the question is, are there common roots to these problems that might help us understand this moment in American life? And what the book suggests is that if we think about our situation through the question of the health of our institutions, if we see our society not just as a bunch of individuals trying to connect, but as institutions that have distinct aims in our lives that are necessary for our flourishing, but that are having trouble serving us properly, then we might see some of the ways in which these problems are connected and also some of the things we might be able to do to push back. Now, you've all, because you think about these things a lot and some of the rest of us do not, let's go with the most basic uh, starting point for the conversation. When you're talking about an institution and or institutions, how are you defining those terms? Yeah. 
Yeah, in fact, that's that's uh, a, a, a more complicated question than we might imagine. There are obviously a lot of different kinds of academic definitions of institution, but I think for our purpose, I, I would say I define institutions as the forms of our common life, the frameworks, the structures of what we do together. Some institutions are are very corporate and, and formal, a university, a hospital, a school, uh, a civic association, a church. Some are not so uh, legally formalized and, and corporatized, like the family is an institution. It's the first and foremost institution of every society. We can talk about the institution of marriage or a particular tradition or profession as an institution. What stands out about these is that each of them is a form. It gives shape and structure to something that a group of people wants to pursue together. And these forms, these shapes are enormously important in uh, allowing our society to function. And also, very significantly, they end up forming us. They give us a kind of shape. They shape our souls. They shape the ways we live together. And so when our institutions are weak, we find our social life kind of shapeless and formless. And the book begins by trying to understand this moment as that kind of problem, a problem where we're having trouble uh, allowing our institutions to form us. And so ultimately, we're having trouble being capable of handling the kind of freedom and responsibility that a free society requires. I'm talking with Yuval Levin. We're talking about his new book, A Time to Build. And it's really a conversation about um, the reinvigoration, renewal, or revival of institutions, particularly those institutions that we have valued in the past and that we have either grown to mistrust or participated in um, really the act of destruction of and Mm -hmm. why we need to change our understanding of uh, of our own participation in all of that. So let's, um, Yuval, let's start with the two you've already highlighted, and that would be marriage, the institution of marriage and and then the the institution of the family. Every culture has these forms, um, but historically what we have understood marriage to be and to mean and what we have understood the family to be and to mean is different than many people now experience in the United States of America. Yeah, and it's and it's it's distinct in a way that's a particular challenge for our kind of free society because the family, even more than most institutions, is formative. By which I mean, in part, that it liberates us by by constraining us, by establishing roles for each of us, by establishing a structure, a set of relationships, and ultimately the family shapes us and is premised on the idea that before we can be free, we need to be formed. That people begin in a fallen, broken state. And that our, the purpose of our institutions is to allow us, to enable us by forming us to be free people. The family certainly does that. It is the first and foremost formative institution in any society. It forms the rising generation. It's where children enter the world and need to be shaped and reared so that they can be uh, responsible people. But it also forms the adults in a family. It gives each of us a set of responsibilities, a set of constraints. And those kinds of constraints are part of the reason why the family has become controversial in contemporary American society, because we just resist all constraints in this moment. And the family, of course, is a particularly uh, direct and, and powerful constraint on people's freedom. And like the other institutions, like like our universities, like our political institutions, when they begin to constrain us, they become controversial in contemporary America. So the family is enormously controversial. 
And I think understanding it as an institution can help us think about why it's at the center of some of the problems we have, but also how we can recover our connection to it. I, I think that at the center of a lot of our problems in America, there is an unasked question. And the question is, given my role here, how should I behave? That's the question that too often our politicians fail to ask, that too often our business leaders and educators fail to ask. But it's also a question that we have to ask within our families. Given my role here, my responsibility, not just given what I want or what my ambitions are, but given my responsibility in this institution, how should I behave? That's a question that the family compels us to ask, and it's why it's so important, but also why it's so controversial. So I'm talking with Yuval Levin. We were talking about uh, his new book, A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Uh, Yuval and I are going to take a very brief break, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Returning now to my conversation with Yuval Levin, we're talking about his new book, A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Um, Yuval, you were talking uh, there just before the break about this question, given my role here and and therefore my responsibilities related to that role, how shall I behave? Um, I am certain that is not a question most people are asking in, in virtually any environment. They are more often asking what do I want and how can I get it? Yeah. And not just that, but, you know, often now what we expect of our institutions, what we ask of them is less formative and more performative. We're looking to them to give us platforms to be seen, to be noticed, uh, a, a way to express our opinions more than a way to be formed and shaped. And so if you look across the range of our institutions, you find people looking for platforms when they should be looking for molds of their character and their, uh, and, and their behavior. And so in our politics, we find a lot of politicians now <clears throat> basically are seeking power so that they can be seen and heard in the culture war. We find the same things in the academy, in the professions, in some of American civic and religious life too. And the, one of the problems with this is that those institutions that become just platforms for people, just stages for narcissism, become very, very difficult to trust. And one thing we know for sure about the state of American institutions is that Americans have been losing trust in their institutions for a long time. The book tries to describe different forms of institutional corruption that might lead to this mistrust. One is obvious and familiar, which is when institutions hide misbehavior um, of the people within them, when a bank cheats its customers or when a member of the clergy abuses a child. That's a, that, that's a form of corruption that obviously undermines trust. But there's another form of corruption that's less familiar but more, more novel in this moment and I think has more to do with our loss of trust in the last few decades, and that is this transformation. From, from formative to performative, from mold to platform, when the only thing that the people within our institutions are doing are just standing on a stage and performing for a, a, an audience that's only interested in the culture war, then I think we've lost the ability to trust those institutions. And that has happened in the university, that happens in Congress every day now, that happens even in American religious life, and it becomes increasingly difficult for us to trust these institutions if they're not saying to us, we're here to make you better. You can see in the few institutions that we do still really have a lot of trust in, the military is a great example here, those are formative institutions. We know that the military takes a certain kind of human person and produces a different kind 
a better kind that has uh, his or her eye on certain kinds of ideals and forms of responsibility. And that's why we trust the military. That formation is the kind of thing we ultimately need out of all of our institutions. All right. So one reference you made there just a moment ago was to religious institutions. And, uh, you know, the vast majority of our listeners are uh, are people who identify as Christians. Most of them uh, go to church, are affiliated with a local church. They may or may not see their affiliation in terms of institutional religion as going beyond that to some, you know, to some denomination or particular flavor or brand of Christianity. But they do acknowledge um, that they are disciples of Jesus Christ, that they are seeking to allow their lives to be conformed more and more every day to the model of who Christ is. And so I think they're going to instinctively get what you're talking about in terms of the formative power um, of an institution, the, of marriage, of the family, of, of mm-hmm. Christian schools um, and churches writ large. And so when I think when we're having this conversation with Christians, there's there's a little bit of, oh, I get that. Yes, but absolutely. We, there, there is, because I think that we begin, uh, uh, the, those of us who are Jewish or Christian begin from a sense that we are fallen to start with, and we need mm. to be formed before we can reach the ideal that we're aiming at. So I do think people uh, with that kind of religious background start in a place where they can understand this problem. Absolutely. Okay, so that's, I'm writing that down. That, I mean, the, the reality that the fallen need to be formed, now you're, now you're all the way back at, I mean, a genuinely worldview conversation. And yes, um, and right. I think that for most of us, when we talk about institutions and fixing something, again, we are way too far down the track of performance, and we have not given much thought to, okay, everybody that's engaged in this institution is operating from a particular worldview, and if they don't share my worldview, then I am going to have to figure out how to have that conversation with them at some point, or we can't really move forward together in a positive way. That's the free society part of this conversation. Yes, I think that's true. There is a there's a there's a way of understanding the deep division at the heart of our politics now as a division over the question of whether we start out fallen and imperfect and need to be formed and that's the purpose of our institutions or whether we start out free and perfect and need to be liberated and our institutions only oppress us and keep us from being what we ought to be. That view, that second view tends to drive people to want to see institutions as performative, uh, as expressive, that all we need from them is an opportunity to express who we are, because who we are is all we need to be. If, on the other hand, we believe that what we need from our institutions is to be formed and made better, to be transformed in some way, uh, then we do have a very different set of expectations of them. I think in one sense, this makes it difficult to talk about institutions with people who don't share our worldview. But in another, it's actually an opening for conversation that says, if we are agreed that our society right now is in a state of crisis, that our institutions are failing us, let's think about how and why it is that we're so dissatisfied with them. Ultimately, I think the fact that so many of our elites and people in power in our society are using institutions simply as stages, as platforms to build their own brand and and perform, uh, should, should suggest to us that, in fact, we need something deeper, something more from the institutions of our society. And ultimately, that can lead us to see that to be free, we need not just to be liberated, we need to be formed for freedom. I think that can be an opening to a conversation that can lead to a much deeper place with those of our neighbors and fellow citizens who don't start out where we are, but might end up a little closer to us if we offer that vision to them in a way that's attractive uh, to begin with. Absolutely. All right, I want to give you the opportunity to address one thing in the title um, that I think 
is potentially a stumbling block for some. And that is this desire uh, that the goal would be to revive the American dream. Um, I think that how we understand the American dream is critical to wanting it to be revived. And so um, I'm, I'm guessing that you address the concept of the American dream from a creedal perspective, not a tribal one. And so can you um, can you share with folks when you say the American dream, what are you talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a very important point, And absolutely, it is for me creedal and not tribal. The American dream is not about a distinct group of people to begin with. It's about a set of ideas. And ultimately, it's about an idea of human flourishing that says that what our society enables us to do is to become free in the fullest sense, free not just in doing whatever we choose, but free in being capable of choosing the right things and then empowered to pursue them. And I I think that that's a vision of the world that encompasses in a broad sense, uh, both the Judeo-Christian framework and the ideals of the West that over many, many centuries have developed into an ideal of human freedom that I think is at the center of our country's life. Um, And that's an ideal that also takes in the concept of equality, of all of us ultimately uh, being created equal, which after all is at the center of the American founding, and that this is a society that enables people to pursue the good as they understand the good, and yet to live together with people who may have somewhat different perceptions or understandings of the good. That's a very complicated undertaking. The ideal that our society puts before itself is very complex and challenging, but I think that if we understand that as the goal, we are up to it. And we are living in a moment now when that's hard to see, when that when that ideal is very challenged. And I think seeing that problem through the state of our institutions can help us to revive it. So absolutely, in that sense, I think the concept of what we actually mean by the American dream is at the center of any effort to understand the problems our country faces. The book is a feast. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yuval Levin, the book is A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, how recommitting to our institutions can revive the American dream. You can find Yuval at the American Enterprise Institute, which is AEI.org. Yuval, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. All right, we are going to talk next about the State of the Union address last night by the President of the United States. We're also going to talk about the fact that Nancy Pelosi was on a tear. There you go. That's from my producer, Paul. We'll be right back. So, Mom and Dad, let me ask you a question. Does your teen seem sensible? The response I get from most parents is, are you crazy? Of course not. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Teens are wired for chaos, and they spread it everywhere they go, including your home. Our job as parents is to help our teenagers emerge as sensible, responsible, and mature adults. The best way to help our teens move in that direction is to allow consequences to teach them when they make bad choices. When your teen breaks a rule, show your deep love for him by refusing to let him off the hook. It could be the best thing you'll ever do to tame the chaos in your home. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. (laughs) 
So Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University is back with us. We are going to talk about last night's State of the Union. We're also going to talk about what we know out of the Iowa caucuses and um, and maybe the impending impeachment vote um, if we get to it. Hunter, welcome back. Hi there. Good to be with you again. That doesn't seem like too much to try to survey in uh, in a brief conversation, right? I, yeah, we could we could easily <laughs> spend all of our time on the State of the Union, no problem. Okay, well, let's start there. So Charles McGee, 100-year-old um, survivor uh, in, and Tuskegee Airman and his grandson, who's in eighth grade um, in the Space Force um, conversation, Rush Limbaugh featured um, a, a military reunion, family reunion, an opportunity scholarship. There was some surprise and delight in last night's State of the Union address that felt a little... Um, like Oprah Winfrey giving stuff away, like there was a little bit of like really, really great, like what's coming next? I want to keep watching because somebody might get a car. That's great. Uh, yeah, the you know the the thing with um, with uh, with Charles McGee particularly got my attention, uh, promoting him um, to brigadier general uh, at the age of one hundred. Um, uh, Donald Trump is the out of all the Republicans I have ever seen. Uh, he seems to be pursuing the African American vote uh, in a big way. Um, that Super Bowl commercial, uh, many of the mm-hmm. uh, the listeners may have seen it on criminal justice reform. Um, that has been a a left wing plea for a long time. Uh, but, you know, uh, Barack Obama, for whatever reason, did not uh, seem to pursue it. Uh, Donald Trump somehow did and and got it done. Uh, that was a big deal. Um, also, he's relentlessly pointing to <clears throat> the advance of uh, minority groups in this economy. So he is he is making the pitch as hard as you can possibly make it. So there were some things um, for Christians uh, that I think we should highlight in last night's speech. The president promised to end late-term abortion, strengthen religious liberty protections. Um, he, at one point, he said, in America, we, don't, we do not punish prayer. We do not tear down crosses. We do not ban symbols of faith. Uh, in America, we, we celebrate faith. We cherish religion. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I kind of I made a lot of notes about this address, and and what I kind of put together was uh, right wing economic populism, uh, which is a different sort of thing than the than the usual Republican free market sort of deal. Uh, so right wing economic populism, nationalism, and social conservatism, uh, with social conservatism including the religious appeal, and uh, yes, so he is he is basically kind of putting a package together for the common man in America uh, who may who may want an active and vigorous government, uh, but not necessarily in the same way that the Democrats want an active and vigorous government. And uh, I think that I think that he's going to cause the Democrats a lot of frustration with that because they're used to the Republicans sort of being the uh, hands-off, small government sort of a sort of a pitch. This is a different sort of a thing, and uh, and he is pursuing religious liberty as part of that mix that I just gave to you. It reminds me a lot of uh, some of the new European politicians uh, who are doing really well. 
So I will say that for those with whom I was watching this last night, um, the optics may have stood out more strongly than um, than anything else. Um, there was a lot of comment in the room I was in about uh, the facial expressions of um, of Nancy Pelosi sitting over the president's left shoulder. And then um, and then just I mean, literally jaws dropping um, that even though she didn't have the mic, she certainly chose to use her position to make um, at the very end of the speech a demonstration of ripping it up, a demonstration yeah. later of waving it around to the gallery um, it it was um, it was it was the worst demonstration of behavior in terms of decorum I think I've ever witnessed. Well, I just think that he is very frustrating uh, to them, um, and and you know, and you can understand why. I mean, first of all, he's very confrontational. So this fight that they've been in, including impeachment, is a big, big fight, uh, and I think that as much as as much as they intended to damage him with that, that appears not to have worked. Um, you know, we just saw the the latest Gallup poll that had his job approval number at 49%, which I think is the highest that it's been in his entire presidency. That is at the end, right? At the end of what, three, three or four months of impeachment proceedings uh, and trial in the Senate. So there has to be tremendous frustration that uh, that the effort to take down the president, merited or not, uh, has totally failed, and now he's coming out with a with a State of the Union speech that I think they know is going to resonate. That's gonna that's gonna hit a lot of voters in a positive way, and I think that's got to be frustrating if you're on the other side. Yeah, certainly. So um, it, uh, the president's address was certainly positive in tone overall. No references to the Senate impeachment trial. Um, I was I was thankful for that. Um, I thought he appeared, you know, confident and forward looking. Um, uh, this line caught my attention. Uh, Our spirit is still young. The, stu- the sun is still rising. God's grace is still shining. And my fellow Americans, the best is yet to come. Yeah, that it, I was really worried um, coming into this State of the Union, I was really worried that he was going to use it to go on about impeachment. Uh, he was going to use it to kind of vindicate his own anger over impeachment and that it would just get really ugly. And of course, that is not what we saw at all, right? Uh, you know, he he really put uh, an, an impressive sort of menu of policies out there. Uh, just looking at my notes, I'll just, just quickly, economy, minorities and economy, opportunity zones, renegotiated trade deals, opioids, healthcare transparency, prescription drugs, parental leave, criminal justice reform, school choice, pro-life, illegal immigration, uh, civil religion, religious liberty, uh, getting out of the Middle East, tribute to Rush Limbaugh. I mean, this was a this was a huge speech with massive scope, and he did not use it to kind of vindicate his uh, squabbles. Amen. Okay. Uh, we got, you and I have to take a quick break. Um, when, when we come back, um, I'm going to give you the opportunity to make some walk-off comments about the state of the union address. And then I'd love to pivot to a conversation about the Iowa uh, caucus and maybe our interpretation of what's happening there in, uh, in the democratic primary. That's all next here with Hunter Baker from union university. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. All right, Hunter, 
uh, any walk-off comments about last night's State of the Union address? Well, I'm just going to say that I, I predicted it's going to go over extremely well with voters, uh, and I think that we may see even still a further increase in Trump's job approval after this. Yeah, I absolutely 100% concur. Um, again, in the room I was sitting in last night, um, younger people uh, were their their thoughts and comments. Every time Trump said something, President Trump said something that, frankly, the Democrats uh, should have been standing up and applauding and didn't. That was actually what what took root. Like, why are they not applauding that? Why are they not? That right. is their thing. And so I do think that the president's approval rating is, will climb um, today. Uh, I think it'll climb today. Well, so, well um, just just to, just to say real quick, I mean, sure. part of the reason they can't applaud him is that they're trying to kind of cast a narrative of him as sort of a a Hitlerian Dylan. figure. Right. And so <laughs> right. why why would you applaud such a terrible person? Right. That's that's kind of what they've got going on. <laughs> Yeah, it's quite challenging. OK, so um, there is going to be an election. There may or may not be uh, a, a, an impeachment, um, but there is going to be an election. And that is um, there. There is now uh, a primary process in place leading off with the Iowa caucus. Um, we do not have full reporting, but with 71 percent of precincts reporting as of this morning, Buttigieg and Sanders are in what everyone will probably, other than Buttigieg, call a statistical tie since both have emerged with 10 delegates in the primary race for the Democratic nomination. So um, that's where we are. The whole thing was a mess. The only other candidate who who emerged with any delegates was Elizabeth Warren with four. The New Hampshire primary is up on Friday. Well, and just real quick, um, I still have not seen results with more than 70 percent reporting right. uh, on the Iowa caucuses. You haven't seen more than that, have you? Nope, just that 71% okay. was this okay. morning's numbers. Yep. So, yeah, so we're still waiting to really see what the what the final tally is on this thing. Uh, you know, and I, I just have to add, this this is a this is a big deal. Uh, you know, a few years ago, I want to say 2012, uh, Rick Santorum won the Iowa caucuses, but that wasn't what came out on election night. On election night, it was Mitt Romney. And they didn't get around to until a few weeks later saying that actually Rick Santorum was the winner of the evening. Uh, so that was a pretty big snafu. But this this was an atomic bomb compared to that. Uh, and it's really going to damage the Iowa caucuses. Uh, it's humiliating in front of the American people and certainly embarrassing for the Democratic Party. Uh, all of these candidates feel like suckers for for the millions and millions and millions of dollars they have poured into Iowa uh, trying to get a leg up in this race. And this is one of the biggest things that Iowa has going for it besides the corn, right? Uh, so <laughs> you have you have really handicapped one of the big sort of uh, industries of the state by letting the caucus degenerate into chaos the way that it did. Okay, so for all of our listeners in Waterloo on 93.1 FM and AM 1090, we know you have more going for you than corn. No, 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 but look, let's be serious about this. Let's be serious <laughs> no, about I this. No, I completely— Farming, I farming is it's huge, huge. But, but the huge. Iowa caucuses— the Iowa caucuses give Iowa a huge influence in the United States politically. Well, and I mean, it's if, a huge it, economic. I mean, eight hundred million dollars have been spent there 
um, just in this cycle. That's absolutely right. And let's just let's just add: Why are we all driving around with ethanol uh, mixed with our gasoline? The the <laughs> the influence of the Iowa caucuses are part of that. Amen. Uh, Ted Cruz, I think, is the only candidate who has ever come out against the the ethanol uh, policy and still won Iowa, which he did in 2016. Uh, but otherwise, people usually cozy up to the ethanol policy because of the Iowa caucuses. Okay, uh, Hunter, let's um, let's just survey what we think is going to happen this week in the impeachment vote, which is pending. Yeah, I think that impeachment is going to just peter out. Uh, I think that you know, I Adam Smith kind of gave his closing argument, uh, which I'll be honest, I think was kind of ridiculous. He he argued that uh, that. If Trump were not restrained, he could do something ridiculous like selling Alaska back to the Russians uh, or that he could move to Mar-a-Lago and leave the government of the United States to Jared Kushner, uh, <laughs> which I thought was almost like a Saturday Night Live skit. I think I think this thing is going to peter out uh, and we're just going to move on and it's going to be kind of a weird episode in American political history. Yeah, you're kind of out of good arguments when um, when what you have left is just imagine imaginative speculation. Um, so, yeah, I think so. so. Let, me ask I, this, I, let me ask this from a uh, from a how how we will remember this. Well, has the president been impeached because the House voted to impeach him and therefore he will be considered an impeached president or since the Senate is going to acquit him, he will not be considered an impeached president. How does what? How is this going to go forward? He's impeached the same way Bill Clinton was impeached. Uh, they both both impeached and both uh, both acquitted in the Senate. Uh, that's what's going to happen. Um, and and you know, in both cases, they ca- they come out of it stronger than they went into it. Uh, you may recall that after the effort to impeach. Uh, after the effort to remove Bill Clinton, his party actually gained in the subsequent midterm elections, and uh, we're seeing Trump come out of this thing stronger. I think that what this means is the American people do not want to see a president removed from office unless it is absolutely clear that that's merited, and I think that that's probably the question for both Clinton and for Trump, and the American people's verdict on that is probably not. Yeah, I I would say that after last night and after um, the week that the Democrats have had um, in in Iowa and what is we all anticipate going to happen in uh, in the Senate vote, uh, maybe today, but maybe tomorrow or Friday, um, it's 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 pretty clear in terms of. Um, you know, in a in a football game, what do you call that when sort of all the energies, the momentum? It does yeah. feel like the momentum is uh, is is in one direction right now. All right, um, Hunter, thank you so very much as always for um, uh, well, just the conversation and your willingness to have it with us um, and to entertain sometimes my not well informed questions. Always good to talk with you, Carmen. <laughs> Thank you. That's Hunter Baker from Union University. You can find him um, on all the social medias at Hunter Baker. We'll be right back.
So one of the questions that I think emerges out of last night, um, again, the State of the Union address by the President of the United States, um, one of the questions that emerges is how do I behave when I'm not winning? Um, Because the decorum, the breaches of decorum, the breaks in decorum last night um, by some in relationship to the president, his the content of the speech, the things that he chose to do uh, in the middle of the speech um, and people's reaction and response to that. People who disagree with him, people who are on the other side of the political aisle, the way they chose to behave was inappropriate. And so um, I think it's a good reminder to us as Christians that somebody is always watching. Somebody's always watching. And we are representing, we are representing Christ in the world today. And so because of who I am in Christ, how then must I behave? Because of my role and my responsibility as a Christ follower, how then shall I live? How shall I behave? What shall I do? Um, And even when there is someone with whom I vehemently disagree, I am not going to behave in a way that negatively reflects on Jesus. And so let's be mindful of that today as we go forth into the world that God so loves uh, as ambassadors of the king and the kingdom. Let's be sure we are representing Christ well in the world. Uh, Next up, I have got Bill English. He and I are going to talk about some economics, particularly those closest to home. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.